Good evening to you. Please be seated. Book of Acts, chapter 22, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and Acts chapter 22 uh, this evening. Remember that in, as we come to chapter 22, that Paul has formally uh, completed his third and final missionary journey, unless some people count his journey from uh, Jerusalem to Rome and the trial before Caesar and all as a fourth missionary journey. I don't tend to look at it that way, but uh, the three primary missionary journeys in which he established churches now, that's complete. He has made his way to the city of Jerusalem in order to keep the Feast of Pentecost. He arrives there and he is informed that uh, there's a bit of misinformation going on concerning him in the city of Jerusalem among the many, many Jews that have become saved uh, in his absence and uh, some idea that he is against uh, the Word of God against the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, circumcision, and these kind of things. And, and so they uh, asked him to consider this uh, funding of a rite of purification for several young men, which he agreed to do, all in an endeavor to, without words, communicate by his actions that he identified still quite strongly with being a Jew and with his Jewish heritage and that he wasn't preaching anything and preaching Jesus as the Messiah, anything different than, um, than uh, what the Scriptures declare him to be. And so, but try as he might, uh, the Bible says that as much as lies in you, live at peace with all men. In any situation, even in a marriage, uh, at best we have only uh, control of half of that relationship. We have no control over... Uh, any relationship entirely, much less a relationship with a nation or a crowd. And so some from Asia, Western Turkey, recognized Paul in the area of the temple and uh, began to declare falsely of him that he is teaching in the Gentile world against the law of Moses, against the temple, against the Jewish nation. And that word spread very quickly. A riot broke out. And uh, the commander of the garrison, Roman garrison there in Jerusalem near the temple, uh, Lysias by name, he grabbed two centurions and presumably their forces, 200 men, uh, to deliver Paul from uh, being beaten to death by the religious crowd. And then he's being ushered off of, uh, into a safe place, into Roman custody. And then we pick things up there at the end of verse 21. And uh, uh, Paul, in talking with Lysias, when he had given him permission, uh, uh, as Paul uh, desired, uh, let's pick it up in verse 39. Uh, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you to permit me to speak to these people. They have completely misunderstood who I am and what I'm about, and these are lies that are being spread related to me. Would you allow me to address this crowd? And so when Lysias had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs. So he's in an elevated position over this 
uh, a religious kind of mob and crowd. He motioned with his hand then to the people, and there was a great silence. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, and he began his uh, speaking to them, men and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Paul seemed to have in his mind from the very beginning of his time of his conversion uh, that if somehow God would grant him uh, the opportunity to once again enter into the city of Jerusalem and preach Jesus Christ as the Messiah, uh, that he, because of his former hostility to Christ and to Christianity, his imprisoning uh, of Christians, the zeal with which he was persecuting the church, he felt that he under might understand them better than anybody else could understand their opposition to Jesus as the Messiah, except for God, and he would be the one to get through to them. And so this is the desire that he had, and here now God gives him uh, that opportunity, and we're going to find that the results are disappointing, but the opportunity is given to them, him uh, nonetheless. He requested they were, that they would listen to him, and uh, when they heard in verse 2 that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, uh, they kept all the more uh, silent. And so when he speaks to them, not in Greek, uh, though he was uh, fluent in Greek, uh, not in Greek, not in the language of the Gentiles, but he spoke to them in Hebrew, or more probably Aramaic, the language of the Hebrews in, the, in that, that ancient time. They recognize he's not talking to us as a Hellenistic Jew, someone who is a Jew living out in the Gentile world and hardly considered a Jew uh, by the more conservative elements of Jews within the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he speaks to them in their language. And then he declares them to be brethren uh, as brethren and fathers. And in that communication, that introduction to uh, there. He's being very, very polite to them, but he's also communicating that he still considers them his brethren. He hasn't ceased to be a Jew in becoming a Christian. He hasn't ceased to have an identity with the nation of Israel and the Jewish uh, people, and he hasn't uh, dismissed all that he owes to the Jewish uh, patriarchs, the Jewish fathers of, uh, of, of the faith that constitute the roots of of Christianity, and so he addresses them in this uh, respectful way, in a very, very humble way, and it would have had its effect uh, without a doubt. Now, when we come uh, to verse 2, uh, some of you might uh, be unfamiliar with chapter 22 altogether, and so what follows, uh, you don't have any idea, and that's wonderful. Uh, we all could wish on some level that every time we read the Word of God, we were reading it for the first time. Uh, but even if we uh, are very familiar with the passage and what Paul says here, to just stop and put ourselves in that moment in the scene. And here Paul ha finally has this uh, dream, this desire of his, since the time he became a Christian. And that was 25 years ago. That's a long time for a dream to incubate in a person's heart. If I could just talk to them, I'd, I think I could get through uh, to them, uh, related to my faith in Christ. So we stop for a moment and we, at, and, and we think and put a pause there and we think, what in the world is Paul going to say to them? Pretending that we don't know what he's going to say. 
Well, the first couple of things that might come to our mind in terms of what Paul might do in this situation is that he would endeavor to clear up all of the wrong accusations and assumptions that have been brought against him and, uh, and uh, point out why they're wrong. That's what some of us would do. I'd be probably very inclined to do that. That situation would become as small as a dime as if God has handed over this opportunity for me to protect my reputation in front of them and, uh, and clear up uh, their misunderstandings of me. Nothing wrong with doing that, uh, but that would be a pretty small uh, view of the opportunity that's being presented to him. The second thing, and this is what I would really uh, uh, bet money on if I bet money on anything, and I don't, I mean, after I lost the first 100,000 on those scratchers, I, I stopped. And I've been, I've been clean for a year on that. So I'm not a gambling person. I was raised by two gamblers, and I knew what it's like to not have food at the end of the month and all of that. And so it just always looked like a losing game to me. And so my bet, though, if I was to bet, is that Paul would stand up before them and do what he has done in the establishing of all of these Christian churches during his three missionary journeys and stand up and give them a sermon proving and revealing Jesus to be the promised Messiah on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. And I would have guessed he would have taken them to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the record of the fall, uh, the creation of man, the fall of man, the redemption of mankind, when within the Godhead, uh, God says, let us, plural, make man in our image. There is a plurality within the Godhead. So when Jesus comes and says that he is divine and one with the Father, it shouldn't shock us. It's all the way back there in Genesis chapter 1. Or I would have taken them to Isaiah chapter 53, that great chapter concerning the Messiah. Lots of other places in Isaiah. Psalm chapter 22 into Micah chapter 5 and built this case. He knew this by heart. And God had blessed that message in bringing uh, Jews to Him, all, uh, to the Lord all through His missionary uh, journeys. And yet he doesn't do that. And it's shocking to me, number one, that he doesn't do that. And then what's even more shocking to me is what he does instead of doing that. I would have thought that given that opportunity, there could not be a better way to communicate his heart and Jesus as Messiah than in that way. And yet that's not what he does. And instead here you have this intellectual and theological giant. And what he ends up doing is he ends up giving them his testimony. He gives them his salvation story. He tells them about how it is he is a Jew who had once been exactly as frenzied and antichrist as any of them were in that crowd had come to become a, a Christian. And he was a miracle of the Holy Spirit and, and he uh, knew that. 
And he recognized, and he wanted them to recognize as well, that his spiritual birth was the only explanation for the man who stood before them now as he told them the story behind that change in his life. I think that maybe after, uh, only after the person in the ministry of Jesus himself and the witness of the Word of God itself, that the greatest testimony to the power of Christianity, the reality of Christianity, is the untold millions of people who have come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior all the way through the years. In every culture, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, it goes all the way across the board. You can't say, well, this is a European religion, or this is a South American religion, or this is a Middle Eastern religion. There's something about Christ that captures the heart, meets the needs of the heart of every kind of person that exists in in the world, and this salvation out of every kind of background. And a testimony is a very powerful thing, and Paul knew it. And perhaps my surprise at the fact that he would stand and use this opportunity to declare his testimony, perhaps it reveals in me uh, that I've lost sight, maybe just a little bit, of the power of a testimony, the power of my, te- my testimony when it is spoken uh, in, uh, under the prompting of the Holy Spirit. A Christian testimony is a very, very simple thing. It's our salvation story, and it's just the story about how we came to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and to be born again. And a testimony is always made up of the same three things. What I was before I became a Christian, how I became a Christian, number two, and number three, the life that I have lived as a result now of becoming a Christian. There is a sense in which everybody's testimony is different. It's as unique as our fingerprints But there's a sense in which every testimony is exactly the same because it contains always those three elements that are communicated uh, uh, in it. And there's a, uh, that uh, the differences related to our testimony and how it is that we came to know uh, Christ. The old who, what, where, when, why, and how of how we came to know Christ who we were at the time uh, we heard the gospel, who shared the gospel with us, uh, what we were at that time, when it happened in my life. Some people are saved in old age. Some people are saved uh, very early in life. What my education was, where did it happen in life? What were the circumstances that all came together for that? Everybody's is different, uh, utterly, uh, utterly unique in each one of our uh, lives. And it's one of the reasons, because our testimonies are unique, it's one of the reasons we never uh, ever get tired of hearing uh, a story about someone's salvation because it's always unique and it's always inspirational. There, I can't really think of the, uh, sometimes, um, sometimes I just don't want to talk. And believe it or not, and sometimes I don't want to 
enter into a conversation with someone. Maybe I'm tired or whatever that kind of a thing is. But one thing I never tire of is asking someone, tell me, how did you come to know the Lord? How did that happen in your life? And then to listen to those same three elements, but so different from my story, and, uh, and then to see the miracle that it is. Sometimes during the worshiping of God and song during, uh, during the service, sometimes I peek. Most of the time I have my eyes closed while I'm worshiping the Lord. I know none of you peek. I'm, I'm more carnal than you in, in this. Don't read the bulletin during that part of the service. Some of you, that will be your take-home point for uh, tonight. But sometimes I'll just look around. I might see somebody standing, not standing, hands raised, not hands raised. And I just think about the miracle that they are. I don't know everybody's story in this congregation, not even remotely. And yet I know for someone in a worship service to stand and to hold their hands up to the Lord when the lyrics are communicating something that a person who is grateful for their salvation and the miracle that they are can hardly remain seated in their seat. And I realize I'm looking at a miracle. And every Christian is a miracle of, of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul gave them uh, his testimony. And we won't examine it uh, deeply this morning. We studied it at length, in, or this evening, at length in, uh, when we studied chapter 9, uh, which gave the details of his conversion. But who and what he was before he became a Christian, he describes just as in any testimony. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way, Christians, people like me, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders. Apparently they are here, the ones that dispatched him to Damascus then uh, to bring in chains, even those who were Christians in Damascus, to bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. You notice that this description Paul gives of himself in verses 3 and 4, and it's, and it's deliberate on his part. He said, uh, I am indeed a Jew. He's talking to a, a, an entire audience of Jews. He said, I know you. I know what you're about. I know what it means to be a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus was one of the main centers of learning in the ancient world. And he had a huge Jewish population in the Gentile world. He said, I was brought up in the city. I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up in the city of Jerusalem. I'm not a, I, I am not a, a, a kind of a, a Grecian Jew, a Jew who has never been to Israel, uh, only familiar with uh, Gentile cultures. I was raised in this city. And not only raised in this city, but I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel being one of the most famous rabbis 
not only of that time, but of Jewish history. And he was a conservative, not a theological liberal at all. He said, I was raised and trained up at the feet of this great rabbi, and 95% of that audience would have thought to themselves, I could only dream of having been trained as a rabbi under Gamaliel. And then he said, according to the strictness of our Father's law, I know the law inside and out, and I was zealous toward God just as you all are today. I persecuted Christians to the point of death. And you want to talk about building a bridge to your audience? He's done it. And what he's communicating is, once I was exactly what you are today once I would have responded to me exactly as you're responding to me at this moment I know you inside and out I know everything you're feeling related uh, to uh, to me and he lays it out and he would have had them at the edge of their seat there in terms of them uh, thinking all of this through. He's not only describing himself and what he was, but he's describing uh, me uh, as well as I listened to him. And in all of this, Paul was declaring to them that there was a time I was exactly like you. They're tracking with him. But then the question in their mind is the same question that fills the mind of the person who is still living the life that we once lived and that we abandoned for something better. And no thinking person escapes that implication of a testimony, whether the testimony is coming out of a religious background or background of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. People wonder then, You left this. I haven't left this. And so uh, we usually have their attention there at that that point. And so they wonder what's wrong uh, with who and what you were and who and what I still am. Why did you feel a need to change or what changed you? And so Paul then in verse 6, he goes on and he tells them the circumstances that surrounded his coming to Jesus as the Messiah. Now it happened as I journeyed, I came near to Damascus, as he's just described, being dispatched by the Jewish religious leaders to to arrest Christians there at about noon. And uh, as you approach Damascus in the Middle East, uh, in uh, in that uh, land near Israel there, and uh, and this is in the spring of the year, uh, the sun is plenty bright. It's very, very bright. And, and yet, it, at noon, when the sun is at its brightest, suddenly, an even greater light from heaven shone around me. And he's describing this to them. And I fell to the ground. And then I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, he said to them, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. 
and those who were with me, he declared. Indeed, they saw the light, and they were afraid, but they did not hear the voice, that is, understand the language that was being spoken, what was being communicated to him, of him who spoke to me. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? Lord, Lord, repeated in the passage. This is his conversion on the road to Damascus. And he said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which, you are appointed, uh, are, which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand, he's blinded by that light. They had to lead, lead me into Damascus uh, as a blind man. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, he came to me, and we know from uh, the Holy Spirit's instruction, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, this is a Christian now, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up uh, at him. And so uh, here he is, Paul describes that what happened in his life was a personal encounter with Jesus Christ himself and, and uh, where Jesus revealed himself to, to Paul and at which point Paul made him the Lord of his uh, life. And he uh, is declaring that a result of the, as a result of this experience with Jesus, the man who uh, traveled to Damascus to arrest Christians was no longer the man uh, who entered into the city of Damascus. And, it, and it, my entire life was changed in a moment uh, when I met uh, Jesus and recognized him to be the Savior of the world and the Messiah. And then finally, in verse 14, he gives the third part of his testimony, declaring to them what his life had become now as a result of his salvation. And then he said, the God of our fathers, Ananias said to Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will. And here is Paul. He's declaring this now to this Jewish audience. Uh, that uh, God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of all that you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. They will not receive uh, and accept what happened to you and your conversion based upon a faith in me. And so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue, I imprisoned and beat those who believed, uh, uh, who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he's talking, he's telling this audience about this conversation that he's having with, uh, with God in, uh, in all of this. And then he declares to the crowd, and then he, that is the Lord, said to me, depart, that is from Jerusalem, for I will send you far away from here to the Gentiles. 
And they listened to him until this word. What is the word? Uh, depart? Uh, far? No. <laughs> the word is Gentiles. They listened to him until this word, the word Gentiles, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. That's a very poetic way of saying, kill him. That's what they wanted to do to him. And uh, the crowd uh, just went ballistic when Paul mentioned uh, the, uh, the term uh, Gentile and that God was interested in the salvation of the Gentiles every bit as much as he's uh, concerned about and interested in the salvation of uh, the Jews and that both Jew and Gentile need to be saved in the same way. But before we get into that, I, th I think it's important to just be reminded of the miracle that our lives are as Christians. And you just stop and think about all of the things that God did before we became a Christian to bring us uh, into uh, a willingness or into a revelation of recognizing his gospel to be true and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. One of the wonderful things is that sometimes it's not till we become a Christian that we then can look back and see what we had been missing in large part all along and him leaving his fingerprints all along. Times we should have died and we didn't. Times where we, should have, we were tempted to take a left-hand turn here or even things in our childhood where we had no control over them and the family went left and, and, uh, instead of right. And if, we had, if they had gone right, then everything would have changed related to my, to my life and I might have never been open to the gospel based upon who and what I am, not anybody else, in the same way. And we look back and we see all of these things. And I think that very often, I think it's a, a perspective that people have about Christians in, in, uh, in the world not having become uh, born again themselves. But they see us, they come into church, they see, they see us all cleaned up, uh, seated, clothed in our right mind. And they don't realize what God has done, the miracle that we are. They would clutch their purses to their chest if they knew what kind of a room of people they're in that we once were. And they just think we come out of the pumpkin patch or something. And, and they have no idea that we are not the same person that we once were, that a great miracle has taken place. People look and they say, well, they never went through hardship. They don't know this or that. They don't know anything about the world or anything uh, like that. They became a Christian because they've got the God gene in them. And, and that's uh, what uh, brought them uh, uh, to Christ. And if they knew all that I knew about the world and sin and pleasure and all of these things, they would abandon all of this in a moment. And they don't realize uh, the level of experience uh, people have had uh, in the world and with evil. And, but you can't tell it now because of what God has done in our lives. I think of a man who once attended this church many years ago and before he died. And he died of liver failure. And he's been in heaven now for many years. And if you looked around the church and you saw him, you would look at him and think, what a kindly 
old man, uh, probably raised in some wealthy, protected kind of environment and, and uh, lived a privileged life and then came to Christ out of, uh, you know, some mountaintop experience. But earlier in life, he had been an extraordinary and accomplished writer and poet. Uh, he was even invited to recite his poetry at Carnegie Hall. But in the course of all of the claim and all of the notoriety and all of the fame that came uh, with that and, and uh, in his desire to enlarge his experience of life and become even more artistic, not realizing that it kills artistic ability, but uh, he ended up a heroin addict. And uh, he remained so until he became a Christian. And it was only Christ that delivered him of that, that addiction and made a miracle of his life. Uh, a loved one in his life was so thankful for what God had done in his life and um, what Calvary Chapel Modesto had become to him as a place of worship and the changes that occurred in his life after he became a, a Christian uh, that they donated $250,000 uh, for this property uh, to be built didn't even attend the church, this loved one, uh, but he did. And that was when $250,000 really meant something. This was before this administration. Just kidding. Now, you, I'll just tell you ahead of time. I will end up going home and repenting in sackcloth and ashes for introducing that into that. So I ask for your forgiveness now. I'm putting this morning's sermon uh, uh, to work immediately. Uh, they say that the, the, um, the level of brokenness in a person's life is directly proportional to the time we sin, to the time that we confess that sin and repent. So I'm a very broken person. Evident. Now, now I've got to deal with that. Not a very broken person. So, but it is an astronomical amount of money today. And it's an astron was even more so back 20 some uh, years ago. The tremendous changes that God makes in our lives and the miracle that each one of us are. And you look at Paul here and you, you notice in Paul in giving his testimony, there's nothing about hell's angels here. There's nothing about a fentanyl addiction or mainlining heroin or being in the pornography business or any of these kind of sort of things in, um, in life. He had to get saved. In order to get saved, he had to get saved out of a religious background, which sometimes is the harder and the greater testimony in, in some ways. And, and uh, so here he is saved out of a deeply religious, but a very misguided uh, religious uh, background. And the overwhelming majority of people in the world today will be saved. Today, I think about, and, and, uh, and I do this often, I think about on Sundays, how many people, Lord, did you bring to yourself today all around the world? He hasn't told me the answer to that yet. But I know he's working on every single heart to accomplish that all around the world. And I know that many, uh, many did. And, so, and most people will have to come to Christ for salvation because our 
world, the population of the world is overwhelmingly religious rather than secular, they will have to come to salvation out of religious background. And that's exactly what Paul did here. It was to a deeply religious man, Nicodemus, that Jesus declared, and verily, verily, I say to you, unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the question concerning salvation is not whether I'm religious or whether I'm spiritual. That's the big word today. Uh, certain generations abandoning formal religion, abandoning uh, so-called Christianity as they've experienced and say, I am uh, not anything, but I am uh, spiritual. And, uh, and, and here you have the question, not whether I am spiritual, but, but have I been born again? And I think it's good to remember uh, the value of our testimony and personal evangelism. Every one of us as Christians should be able to give our testimony. It's not a test. Just consider it. Give our testimony of who and what we were before we became a Christian, how we became a Christian, and the life that we live as a result of the changes of this spiritual birth, to be able to give our testimony in 10 minutes, to give our testimony in five minutes, and better yet, in the fast pace of this culture that we live in, probably to get it down, at least as a starting point, down to 90 seconds in terms of being able uh, to communicate or at least to begin to communicate uh, uh, that, uh, the gospel with them. I'm, I am regularly in conversations with people where I'm only able to get a sentence or two of my uh, testimony uh, in, into them. So sub, some subject, and it's very easy today, some subject will come up about how awful the world is or the meaning of life, and, and, uh, and I'll say something to them after they've uh, declared something like that, uh, and I'll say, you know, I, I looked all over the world as best as I could look all over the world. And it, 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 it is only what I found revealed in the Bible that allows me to make any sense of this world that I live in. But when I look at the world that I live in, it makes complete sense to me as I understand it through the Scriptures. I couldn't make heads or tails of this apart from the Bible. And oftentimes that will be the thing that uh, begins a discussion. I can't make any sense of the world apart from uh, uh, Genesis 1 through 3. God's creation of the world, the fall, the salvation of man. We've been created for a relationship with God. And is that so inconceivable and that my imperfections have separated me from a relationship with God, but God loved me so much that he sent a provision for the forgiveness of my sin that I might enter into that relationship and experience a spiritual uh, birth. And, and to uh, deliver that, that message you know, very quickly when needed uh, to, to someone and that God has provided that Savior and salvation to us. And I could say it in 90 seconds and then we see where it goes from there. I can't make heads or tails of this world apart from that Bible. And people today think, from the Bible? I thought it was just a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, and what does it have to say at all about making sense of the world that we live in? And it plants a seed. 
It plants a seed. Sometimes I'll just ask people, and you don't have to do this, I'm just telling you that sometimes our testimony is, is a great introduction to then introducing kind of the four spiritual laws that we've been created by God. Our sin has separated us from God, but God loved us so much that uh, He sent His uh, Son to provide the forgiveness of our sins and that we are born again by putting our faith uh, in Him. And so sometimes I'll talk with someone, especially if I, if I know them, and occasionally I'll run into old friends that I haven't seen in decades and decades and decades. And I'll say something like, you know, as I grew up, I realized that I can't enjoy the micro of life unless I understand the macro of life. I've got to have questions answered in my life about how we got here, how the world got here. Why is man the way that he is, so broken and so fallen? Why does death exist in the human uh, condition? Why do we treat one another uh, the way uh, that we are? And, and without the understanding, I couldn't just, you know, eat ice cream and whatever it is and go to movies and eat bowls of pasta or whatever would be the thing that, without, under, without understanding the big questions, the answers to them. And I, and, and I said, that God, the Bible contains the answer to those questions. And, uh, and then I'll say something, not in a way that puts them on any kind of a, a, a front. I said, no, you ever wrestle with questions like that? And what, what's your answer for those things, for those questions that plagued me? They've never given thought to those questions. It's eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. And it gets a person thinking about the fact, yeah, how did we get here? Why is Mike Crawford so messed up? And the need of salvation and sanctification or whatever. And it just starts the ball rolling in their mind. And then depending on their response, the conversation begins. And how God saved us. So God didn't save me out of, uh, of being a hell's angel or out of a drug background or something like that. I, I liked, basketball saved me from uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. I didn't want anything to affect what I could, could do on the court. And, uh, and so, um, so but, but what brought me to the Lord, and it's another thing that sometimes I'll say to people is, um, I, 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 what brought me to the Lord is, what's the meaning of life? Life is so empty. It, it, what is it to live life if there is no meaning and no purpose? And so I have to be careful when I share the gospel at the end of, of a service because sometimes I'll say, hey, and if, and if you want to be saved from your emptiness, from your loneliness, from the meaninglessness of life, and I will emphasize that because that's what I'm passionate about because that's what brought me to Christ. 
Not a concern for the forgiveness of my sins. A need for meaning and purpose. Look what it's done to me, and I'm just talking to you here as an example in my life. We talk passionately about what brought us to, uh, to, uh, to Christ. And so the, we bring that up, and I have to remind myself, remember repentance and sin they need to be saved from, not just emptiness and a lack of purpose and meaning in life, and to bring that up as well. And you have a testimony that's different in, in, in a, a different way, and it will manifest really the beauty of God's of God's salvation and uh, of, of what God does to reach into uh, a, a human life. Our testimonies are powerful, and it's important not to forget how powerful they are. Sharing our testimony is a wonderful way to evangelize. People can argue with theology. They can argue over doctrine. But they can't argue over our story and our changed life. And they may, they may look at it and they may dismiss it as kind of anecdotal evidence. I mean, it's just uh, this, but it's still your story and now it's in the hands of the Holy Spirit in their life. And if there's one thing that we're an expert on in all of life, it's our testimony. What we were, how we came to know Him, and the life that he has led us into as a result of being uh, born uh, again. And so Jesus, of course, he understood the power of testimony. You remember when he, he delivered those demons out of the demoniac Gadara, and he said, the demoniac said, let me follow you where you're going next. And he said, no, you go back to your village and tell them the great things that God has done in your life. You go back and tell people who you know and have a relationship with and know what you once were, the explanation for the change in your life. And let that be the impact. And an honest person will look at the change that occurs in our life by the Holy Spirit and recognize it to be real and to give it their uh, due consideration. And so Paul lays out this testimony Everything is going fine until in verse 1 he declares that Jesus told him to depart from Jerusalem for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And at the mention of the word Gentiles, the crowd just erupts. So it, it was a, a, a mob, a frenzied mob uh, uh, moments before and then it quieted down to a respectful mob and then the word Gentile sends it into a frenzied mob uh, all over again. And uh, you notice that they proceeded to uh, raise their voices away with this fellow uh, from the earth. For he's not fit to, to live, kill him. And then they cried out even more and they tore off their clothes. They're, is it tearing their clothes is, it, is an, a, an example of the pain that what he's just said here has uh, torn their hearts. They threw dust in the air uh, just for the simple fact that they didn't have stones apparently to throw uh, it, it Paul. Dust was all they could have in that that environment. And so uh, this frenzy that occurred here as they, Paul uses the term uh, Gentile. 
Uh, he didn't curse their mothers. Uh, he didn't threaten their wife or the, their wives or their children. He just used the term Gentile. Now I've noticed, maybe you haven't, but I have used the word Gentile repeatedly in the course of this sermon. And a riot hasn't broken out. Nobody's thrown a shoe at me. Nobody's thrown a Bible at me. Nobody's thrown a walker at me. Nothing's been thrown at me. So we wonder, what in the world is it that, that, that is, is going on here that would create this kind of frenzy? And it was doubtless just a response to the considerable hostility that existed between the Jew and the Gentiles in that day. And, uh, but supremely, they were offended. Uh, these Jews were by the most in what Paul said, and that, that Gentiles could be saved independent of Judaism. They would not need to become a Jew first and honor the traditions of the Jews. The Jewish nation and the Jewish people were not a mediator to knowing God and achieving salvation, but that they could be saved as uh, Gentiles and, and uh, that Jew and Gentile uh, both alike needed to be saved equally and uh, that God loved them and wanted them to be saved uh, equally. So they're okay with evangelizing uh, Gentiles. They weren't uh, having any problem with Paul if he went out into the Gentile world and told them that they needed to be saved, they needed to be right with God, as long as he directed them now to become a Jew and keep the law of Moses and be circumcised and honor the city of Jerusalem and, and the temple. And, and earn your way to salvation by the keeping of the law of Moses. Wouldn't have had a problem with anything like that, but it was inconceivable to them that a people as sinful as, as Gentiles could be uh, saved on a, an equal basis with the good moral religious uh, Jews, that salvation was by faith and, and uh, not, by, uh, not by works. And then as all of this is going on, the commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Apparently he didn't understand the language that was being spoken. Remember, he has probably allowed Paul to speak to the crowd in the hopes of finding out, uh, out of the discussion, what is it that's created this frenzy? What problem do they have with Paul? So he could become a part of the solution somehow here. And, uh, and so he's as in the dark about what this is all about as ever he was. And, uh, and he still has a man in custody. He doesn't understand uh, what it is that whether Ch Paul ought to be charged with a crime or ought to be released from custody. And so he decided to use the old tried and true Roman way, and that is to examine the prisoner by uh, scourging. And you notice there in, in verse 24 uh, that the scourging was the purpose for the purpose of examining Paul, not to punish him. So it was like ancient waterboarding in the ancient world. They would just take the cat of nine tails and complete with its glass and pottery and bone in it, and they would begin to whip you until finally you would uh, confess the sin that you had committed. And this is what they're going to do to Paul. What have you done? We're going to get it out of you by means of this examination. 
just as they uh, endeavored to do with Jesus. But of course, Jesus had no sin to confess to bring an end to the scourging. And so they continued to scourge him to within an inch of his life. They still wanted to crucify him, but um, they were going to scourge him in a, in a ruthless way. And as they bound him with uh, uh, these leather thongs, uh, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, who has been charged to do this, he said, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman, and not only a Roman, but uncondemned? You're, I'm a Roman citizen. And number one, a Roman citizen could never be scourged. And you certainly couldn't scourge a Roman citizen without him being guilty of a charge or without at least having a charge to bring against him. You never, it was a right of Roman citizenship that you could not uh, scourge a Roman citizen as a, as a means of, of uh, examination or under any circumstances. Well, the centurion, uh, he realizes that this is against Roman law, and he went and he told the commander, Lysias, and he said, take care what you're doing here. This man is a Roman. And then the commander came and he said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And uh, he said, yes. And the commander answered and said, with a large sum of money, I obtained my Roman citizenship. And Paul said, but I am born a citizen. So there are three ways you could get Roman citizenship in the ancient world. The first way was if you were a great Roman general or military leader and you accomplished great things for the Roman Empire, Caesar could uh, bequeath Roman citizenship upon you. A second way was to buy Roman citizenship, and it would cost a fortune to do that. Lysias probably spent all of the money he ever made in, in Roman military to pay for his citizenship. The third way was to be born uh, as a Roman citizen, and that's what Paul was. And Paul uh, then answered him and said, but I was born a citizen. I, I, it's even a higher citizenship than, than you were able to purchase. And then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And they're moving away fast. It's a, you can picture it in your mind. And the commander was also afraid. And these are guys that don't get afraid by much. They were afraid after he found out that Paul was a Roman and because he had bound him. He could be called on the carpet and uh, lose his pension. He could be dismissed from his position for uh, doing what it was here. Not only scourging a Roman citizen, but without even a charge. Serious business. You have to respect, isn't that wonderful? How many of you noticed it? Didn't hear a sentence I said before that. Of course, you understand that. But you have to respect the integrity of this man. Once he knew, he did the right thing here. And so uh, the next day, when he wanted Lysias, he still doesn't know what in the world, why, what he's accused of Paul is, why he's accused and by the Jews. And so he released Paul from his bonds and he commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear the next day and, and brought Paul down and set them before them. And uh, here was a, an investigation or an examination that was worthy of Roman law. And... Uh, and we'll pick that up next week as we head into chapter uh, 23. 
I think it's wonderful to just stop and think about um, here tonight and we'll ask the worship team to come up and lead us in worship. If you come up for a moment, and that'd be great. But to just stop and think about um, the miracle of our salvation. Sometimes I think about, I think about what I was and then I've been a Christian walking with the Lord since 1980. And what would I be if I had invested 44 more years in the direction I was already going in? And it's a horrifying uh, thought. And it makes me so thankful for my salvation. And to just stop for a moment tonight and to just think not only about this salvation, this big salvation that's occurred in our lives, the big picture of salvation, but to stop and to realize those little left-hand turns, those right-hand turns, those times He saved our lives when He didn't need to save our lives so we would one day hear the gospel and then just marvel at our, our testimony that He has given to us. A couple of lines from a couple different hymns kind of prime the pump, I think, of, of thanksgiving as we think about the perfection of our salvation story. Lost but Jesus saved me, saved me by His love. Lost but now He keeps me for my rest above. Lost but Jesus found me in the desert wild. Lost but He redeemed me, owns me for His child. And then another hymn. I found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. I love to tell how He lifted me and what His grace can do for you. Saved by His power divine, saved to new life sublime, life now is sweet and my joy is complete, for I am saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. Once we were not saved, and today we are saved. Hallelujah. Let's give them praise and worship tonight as the worship team prepares us to close us in this way.